Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Religious Studies Project. It's Monday morning, and we have a new episode for you today. Joining us today is longtime RSP interviewer Ray Radford, who you'll certainly recognize. And he's talking with Bradley Onishi, who has been a longtime friend of the RSP. And they're discussing Bradley Onishi's new book, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. This is a packed episode talking about Christian nationalism, the January 6th insurrection, religion and politics, and how it's playing out in recent years. There's a lot to unpack, and they will explore these issues in much more detail. So take it away, Ray. If you've been paying attention to the media or the world in the last couple of years, you may have noticed a pattern of disparate groups coming together and various terminologies and various terms and group names and but where are all these coming from? Where are they all why are they all getting together? Where's their history? Where's their their backgrounds? Well, today we have uh uh podcaster, author and scholar Bradley Onishi, who is uh whose new book is called Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism. What comes next? Bradley, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Good to be here and uh, always appreciate the Religious Studies Project. So uh, thanks for having me on. That's all right. This is not your first. This is your first podcast? No, I was on with um, a couple of years ago with Dave McConaughey and oh, talking about uh, various things, but uh, glad to be back. Well, good to be back because your book was uh, amazing. Um, I was a little annoyed at it that it came out uh, after my thesis was submitted. Because it would have been so useful, um, but you know, there's no harm, no foul. I'm sure I'll perhaps have a use for it at some point. You should have emailed me. I would have wait. I, I would have, you know, adjusted the timeline. My <laughs> my apologies. <laughs> oh, that's all right. You know, one day I'll be that powerful that I can just go give me the books. Um, <laughs> but let, let's start with like a, a um, for those who may not know the terminologies. You know, how would how would you if you had to explain it to someone who, you know, in a very sort of simplistic way, how would you explain Christian nationalism to someone? Sure. Yeah, I think that uh, Christian nationalism very simply is the idea that Christian Christian Christianity and Christian people should be privileged somehow, whether economically or politically or culturally. And so in the United here in the United States, you know, Christian nationalists would think that they are the heirs to the founders of the country, that the country was supposed to be a Christian nation, according to the founders, and therefore Christians should be uh, de facto uh, somehow privileged uh, in terms of electoral politics, in terms of policy, in terms of economic status, in terms of cultural status. And uh, you know, for me, what's really important is to talk about white Christian nationalism, because uh, the data shows us, at least in this country, that uh, when you add in the white, you do get this story of the country that is really a story of nostalgia, uh, mm. longing for a time when the country was great, when the the country was a city on a hill, uh, Matthew chapter five. And, uh, you know, when you ask other folks, uh, black Christians, uh, Christians of color, they, they tell a story that's more based on hope for the future, one that looks forward to a time when the country will actually live up to its promises. And so I think Christian nationalism is one term. And then when we add in white Christian nationalism, we get an even more textured understanding of what that means. Mm. Actually, I thought that was quite quite an interesting part of it where you mentioned that the black Christian nationalists want to sort of move forward so they themselves can kind of get 
I, I assume, yeah, I suppose it's more, more along the lines of getting their own version of the American dream. You know, getting getting to be actually to be able to have a part of the the um, Christian national the the American exceptionalism that that seems to be really abundant in a lot of these groups. You know, they kind of want to have um, well have it all really. But um, how much of this is sort of based on things like you know manifest destiny and the um, myth of progress and all that kind of stuff? Oh yeah, that that's all very much present. Uh, I I would say that. Uh, white Christian nationalism operates on explicit American exceptionalism. Uh, there's an understanding that God chose the United States as a a nation that would play a very special part uh, in Amer- uh, excuse me in human history. There's a sense that uh, God has ordained the United States to be this sort of uh, world leader, and that that relates very much to the doctrine of discovery and manifest destiny uh, and all of those very uh, well-worn paths that, uh, have been discussed, you know, for a long time. So again, I think if we tie the whiteness to the Christian nationalism, we start to understand how all those tropes really tie together. The, the mm-hmm. vision of the nation really fits when you ask the black Christian nationalists or the black Christian in general, they're thinking, well, this is a country where we began on the margins. Uh, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. Died, uh, 55 years ago, almost to the day. And in his last speech, he talked about how the promises of the United States had never been granted to black people, but that someday they would reach the promised land. And I think that's the difference in in how these understandings of Christianity and the United States uh, work together uh, in our contemporary moment. I think, especially now, sort of like if you bring up last week's shooting in uh, a Christian school, I think it was Marjorie Green Taylor or one of the one of the Republicans who said something along the lines of "This is the first shooting in a Christian in a Christian setting or something." It's like, well, we're a white Christian setting, sure, because there's what's named Dylan Roof who yeah. you know, shot up a black church. Yeah, you know? the Charleston Nine would, uh, you know. The, so I, I think I think your point is a really good one. That when she talks like that, she has she's 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 showing you everything mm. about what I just said. She's putting it all on the table and she's really not hiding it. Which is another thing. It's sort of like it's sort of. It seems to me that there's a um, a prevalence of people who are in some form of position of power who are actually really able to push these agendas along, which I think is relatively scary when you kind of think about just how much power these people do have. Yeah, you know, in the book, I, I try to make the case that uh, there really has been a kind of sixty year history of of leaders organizing and and gaining political power in order to push through a white Christian nationalist agenda. And what I think we're seeing now is really a kind of acceleration of that to a really scary crescendo. Uh, someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to say openly that she is a white Christian or she's a Christian nationalist and she's white. Mm-hmm. You're going to see books come out that 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 say folks should openly uh, don the label of Christian nationalist. The Trump years and the last seven, uh, six, seven years in this country have really ramped up uh, what has been a 60-year attempt to take back the country and, and instill the vision that white Christian nationalists have for it. And so, uh, yeah, we, we live in, we live in, you know, I don't need to tell anyone listening or you this, but, uh, you know, from my view, we live in perilous times in terms of American democracy and, and a very polarized public square. Do you think it's only going to get worse as things go on in terms of like political power? Uh, you know, I think there's there's reasons for hope. Uh, and I think that, that those are worth holding on to. The 2022 midterms were different than many prognosticated. 
You had the Democrats do much better in the Senate than was was thought. Uh, even the the majority that the Republican majority in the House of Representatives is much smaller than was expected. People like Kerry Lake in Arizona and Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania are not elected leaders in those states. So there are reasons to think that many uh, Americans are, are now understand that democracy is a a kitchen table issue. Uh, the issue of reproductive rights uh, is also playing a part in this uh, this whole mix. Uh, just j- this week, we had a series of elections that also gave reason for hope. Um, in Chicago, there was a progressive mayor who was elected. Uh, in uh, Wisconsin, uh, the Democrats now have control of the Supreme Court for the first time in half a generation. And uh, there's a lot of hope that uh, abortion will not be banned there, that uh, 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 voting rights and voting districts will be uh, protected and made fair. So there's reasons for hope. However, when I say that, I, I always want to say there's also reasons to be incredibly vigilant and concerned. Uh, this week in Tennessee, uh, in the wake of the shooting that you just mentioned, uh, three elected representatives at the state legislature uh, have been threatened with expulsion. And there's going to be a vote uh, this week on whether or not they should be expelled simply for protesting uh, the lack of gun legislation. Um, It's a clearly, it's a clear, it's a move by a democratic, a a democratically elected supermajority in the Tennessee state legislature to weaken democracy. And that's not limited to Tennessee. I could point to instances of that all over the place. I could also point to the instances of Trump supporters like Charlie Kirk and others ramping up the civil war language. And so I guess my, my, my response to you would be yes and no. I think there's reason for hope, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be incredibly worried about what is to come in 2024, uh, what is to come beyond that, and what is simply happening right now in terms of the hundreds of anti-trans bills that have been put forth, um, restrictions on abortion, and so on and so on and so on. I mean, the the knock-on effect would be pretty pretty brutal as well i feel you know even if even if a lot of the democrats did win the the effects of these bills and these uh these these power plays that have been done are, are still going to be you know felt for the next you know, decade or so very much and so you know w- the wisconsin case is, is a really good one to take so we just had this big win in wisconsin for a supreme court justice that really could tip the balance there but that all dates back to uh, a governor uh, Scott Walker, who was elected a decade and a half ago, right? So to your point, the, the control of state legislatures, the control of state houses and governor mansions uh, has an effect that lasts well beyond uh, you know, one term. And so uh, we're in the middle of that. I mean, if you, if you look across the country, uh, Joe Biden may be in the White House and, and many people, of course, have various opinions on Joe Biden, but the state houses and the local politics continue to be dominated by the American right. And I think Democrats, progressives, leftists, socialists, they're just catching up to that fact and uh, trying to uh, do something about it. But it will take time. Mm. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up with you is that you have a history with this, with the whole history of white nationalism, yeah. not white nationalism, Christian nationalism, I should say. Um, and one thing I really wanted to kind of say was I, I did some maths. You, you put some some numbers down in your book, sort of leading to. I won't mention ages here because you know I don't want to embarrass. No, you. go ahead, go ahead, go um, ahead. Well, we're both in our you know um, late thirties, early um, hitting that forty mark, and 
so when I was reading, I sort of I've not really thought about this before because uh, you grew up in in Southland, you know, like um, SoCal, California. Um, I grew up in a, a tiny little town of like 600 people in, in um, New South Wales. And but when we were both in high school, there were these evangelical churches which were going around trying to spook themselves as being an alternative and being different. And you know, like um, you know, all the all the preachers had tattoos and all this thing. That was, yeah, like you said, yeah. they're all in hardcore bands, and and that's something that that became a thing in, in my high school where everyone started going to this this evangelical church around the corner. I I never went because, well, that required getting up early on a Sunday and that's still <laughs> something that I hold intrinsically dear, not doing. Um, but, yeah, I just thought it was sort of interesting that um, – and then you, know, you sort of mentioned people like Charlie Kirk. Do you think like the, the vanguard of like this, this, this movement is the younger generation? Yeah, especially when you look at people like uh, that, that storm the steps of January on of the Capitol Hill. Yeah. You know, for me, I think one of the things that I just thinking about the history you recounted, if we think about the, you know, the mid 90s, the late 90s, when I was really part of this movement as a teenager, and then into the early aughts. For me, one of the things that's different about that time period is yes, when I converted, I was, you know, I was one of those high school kids, or, you know, at age 14, that got really into church, really into Jesus converted uh, in an extreme way, became a minister by the time I was 20, the whole the whole program. And there was something really cool in those days about being a countercultural Christian, meaning that you were going to be unaccepted by the world, but you were going to be different and stand against the, the current and hold hold your ground against the tide of, of godlessness and sin and secularism and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we really hung our hat on that. That was kind of like a fun thing to do when you're 16 and you want to be a rebel. Well, that's one kind of weird way to be a rebel. I'll, I'll, re- I'll rebel by being this Christian who, you know, doesn't drink and doesn't have sex before marriage and all that stuff. What I think when I think of Charlie Kirk and the way that he's become what I call America's Christian nationalist youth pastor, it's no longer like we want to be countercultural. It is we want to dominate and conquer culture. It's no longer, hey, the world won't get us, but we don't care. We love Jesus. It is, yeah, the world doesn't get us, and that's why we're going to go overrun the world. And so when I say that I think the Trump years have really accelerated this Christian nationalist movement, that's what I mean. I I don't think it's an aberration from history, but I do think it is something that has ramped to the point where if you're uh, a young person in one of those youth groups and you're listening to the kinds of content that, that Charlie Kirk creates, if you're 24 years old and you're part of one of these mega churches that you talked about, if you're a 31-year-old you know, parent of two, the message you're receiving is like, you know, you need to think of yourself as a conqueror of culture, not counter-cultural. And, and that's different. And so when you bring up January 6th, that's what I think of. I think of a, a culture that is now bent on domination. Rather than standing apart or being different or, uh, you know, uh, rebelling by way of uh, loving Jesus, and so that to me is frightening. But it is a hallmark of I think the contemporary moment when it comes to Christian nationalism. Mm. Speaking of um, January six, um, you you say in your book you know you start out your day on a surfboard and everything was like nice and peaceful, and then you go and and start watching the news um, when you get back home and it's sort of like. That that was a nice segue into it. So like nice and peaceful, blah blah blah. But then were you doing a lot of the um um sign watching and the flag flag looking and it's sort of like, oh that's such a group and then but then did you sort of sort of think 
why these groups together? It was really, and I, I think this goes without saying, it, it was really obviously a surreal day, uh, a day that mm. you just can't believe is happening. And for me, it was really a day that operated on like many levels. You know, one is I'm just an American who's watching on his screen the Capitol get overrun in a way that you're like, we no longer have a peaceful transition of power. Mm. What is going to happen at the end of the day? Is, are we going to certify this election? Um, the world is watching. Everyone from Australia to uh, oh. you know from 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 Sydney to Berlin to uh, Beijing is is taking notice of what's happening. So that's a whole we're in a whole new chapter of world history in that sense. But I'm also thinking to myself, would I have been there? Like if I had stayed in this movement, do I participate in January 6th? Am I praying for the people that are doing that? That scared me. And then the third level is yes, I'm a scholar of religion, right? And I'm thinking. You know, I'm on Twitter, I'm talking to all my scholar religion friends, and we're all noticing the signs that say, uh, you know, Trump is my president, Jesus is my savior. We're noticing the Psalm 144 patches. We're, we're seeing, you know, statues of Mary being carried around, the Christian flag, the Gatson flag, the Confederate flag. And what you realize there is that this was a, a Christian nationalist revenge festival. Uh, it was a way to, as my colleagues Sam Perry and Phil Gorski would say, try to restore order to a country they think has been overtaken mm -hmm. by leftists and secularists and immigrants and uh, all kinds of folks. And so uh, that day, yeah, it operates for me on on a number of levels, and it, it's really hard to encapsulate just the kind of surreal nature of that whole experience, as I'm sure it was for many people uh, watching from from California to to all over the world. Yeah, I remember I just ended up watching a live stream. I think it was like The Guardian or someone was live streaming. <laughs> I was just sitting in the office going, huh, all right, well, this is uh, this is different. This is, this is, <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll see what happens after this. Um, but have you been paying sort of attention to like all the conspiracy theorists, theories that have come out after it? Sort of, you know, that whole, now let's just blame everything on Antifa and, the fact that then people do believe that, but still not think it's a like it was a Christian sort of uprising. It's you know I think for me I write about this in the book. The conspiracy theory aspect of 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 this whole universe is really interesting because I think in one sense when it comes to January sixth, it's a way to kind of shift blame and shift responsibility onto uh, whether it be Antifa, whether it be leftists, mm -hmm. whatever, whatever it may be the deep state. Charlie Kirk this week talked about how uh, you know January 6 would have been nonviolent but the, <laughs> the the law enforcement provoked them and they had to respond I mean it was kind of that line there's also a sense with these conspiracy theories that it, it's part of the revenge fantasy I think that the white christian nationalists in the United States really believes that they have the the sole right to determine what is real and true mm. uh, what's what's actual like they're the ones that are supposed to have the authority to determine reality. And for so long now, they've been told that their reality is one that's retrograde, uh, that their understanding of the American body politic, their understanding of science, their understanding of gender, their understanding of sexuality, their understanding of race, it's all retrograde. And to me, the conspiracies really act as this like revenge fantasy, like what we have been told for so long that we have to adjust our worldview and, and blah, blah, blah. You know what? We're not doing it. Here's, here's what's real. QAnon, Pizzagate, Berther, name the conspiracy. Yeah, the evidence, the data, all of that. It, it. You can tell me what you think, and I'm going to give you my evidence and my sources. And I don't care. I don't care 
if you try to debunk me because this is real and I'm going to mold reality into what I want it to be. And I have that right because I'm the I'm the heir to the founder of the nation. And I think I think Christian nationalists really use conspiracy theories in that way. And it, it's a kind of p- peculiar way because usually, you know, I've said this before, if like you have a friend, like if I'm at a barbecue and a friend says to me, hey, what are you doing next Saturday? Going to get together with my Bigfoot group and go over the ev- the new evidence for, for Bigfoot. I'm going to be like, well, okay, yeah, that, I mean, I don't, I'm busy. I'm probably not going to come to that, but cool. Have fun. I don't believe in Bigfoot. But you know, when my friend Jeff tells me that, I'm not scared. I don't mm-hmm. think Jeff is going to be like violent. I'm just like, well, all right, Jeff. Yeah, enjoy that. I mean, if you, you know, Bigfoot, UFOs, you do your thing. Sounds great. When the white Christian nationalist has their th- conspiracy theories about like QAnon and, and birtherism and Pizzagate, I'm scared because they're going to act on those mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in a way that expresses their grievance and their resentment. And I, I think that is something really to like not, not lose sight of. No, I mean, Pizzagate's a good example since there was, well, there's been a couple, well, at least one uh, point where someone turned up with a gun. It's yeah. like, okay, you know, this, is the, this is the other problem. It's sort of like, I think you know, the rest of the world sort of sits back and just goes, oh, good, they're also heavily armed, uh, which is, you know, you know, Second Amendment, that's, you know, fair enough. But, you know, I think that's, everyone sort of just starts thinking it's a bit, yeah. It's- yeah, if you if you couple your conspiracy conspiracism with a threats of violence, now we're just in a completely different realm, mm. you know. And I think that's where that's where the white Christian nationalist conspiracy uh, cosmos really, you know, scares me. There's a bit bit you sp- state uh, the evangelicals don't see interreligious they they see interreligious dialogue as an oxymoron because they don't see others as as legitimate. But if they finally got what they wanted, like this this Christian nation. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think they'd actually be able to hold on to it without, you know, or would they just eat themselves alive arguing with each other? They, they would. Uh, you know, I actually had this discussion with a couple of scholars and journalists at Georgetown recently. And, uh, you know, wh- one of the things we we were kind of joking about was like, if, if you had this scenario, you would have a situation where there'd be all these camps vying for power in the newly formed theocratic United States. Uh, and, you know, you would have in the North Midwest, you'd have the reformed camp coming from Minnesota and Michigan. And here come the Calvinist. And all along the Southern border and the Southwest, you'd have a lot of like new apostolic reformation types and they would be get banding together. And then in the Southeast, of course, the Southern Baptists would be ready. And in California and Oregon and Seattle, the, the mega churches and the non-denominationals and you know, it's it's kind of really sick fan fiction, or I don't know what it is, but um, you know, for nerds. But <laughs> in response to your question, they're way better off being the opposition party, the party of grievance and resentment, rather than the party that actually has any chance at implementing the visions that we see, because they would tear each other apart. I mean, you know, one of the things that's kind of scary about thinking of, about that is that you think about the wars of religion in Europe. Um, and you know the the sectarianism and the the denominationalism and the Catholic versus Protestant, and I kind of think if if they ever achieved their vision, that would be the next step. Mm-hmm. Would be, would just be bloody and brutal wars of religion based on based on denominational disagreement. Whether that would be again, you know, Southern Baptists, whether that's you know Reformed types, et cetera. So it it's it's. I hope we never get there. Um, but I also like I I also think. Let me give you an example. Sorry, long answer here. No, I go for it. We had the overturning of Roe v. Wade in this country, and 
it, you know, a lot of, a lot of people noticed it's kind of like when the dog catches its tail or uh, it actually catches up to the car it's chasing. Well, what do you do then? And there are splintering. There are uh, signs of splintering among, you know, hardcore anti-abortion groups, whether they be Protestant or Pentecostal or Catholic, because they they don't really they can't really agree on what to do next. Like, how far do you take it? What's the next step? Do you ban all contraception? Do you ban, um, you know, do you try to put women in jail uh, who help other women get abortions? Do you try to put uh, anyone who who takes someone out of state to get an abortion in another place? Uh, do you? Do they get the death penalty? Do they get life in jail? And so you can start to see all these details that they are like they don't know how to work out among themselves. And I think that's kind of a a prism for what would happen if they actually achieved this Christian nationalist uh, utopia they think they want. Uh, what do you think they would see as the like the most base win? You know, if, if they just you know just a, an off chance they they win something. Uh, uh, well, a couple things. I think you would you would see. Uh, a, a complete ban of abortion in all 50 states. Mm-hmm. I think you would see a complete ban of gender affirming care for uh, anyone under the age of 18. Um, I think you might see the uh, federal outlawing of uh, uh, any display of gender nonconformity. So if one were to show up on a, in a small town in Georgia or Montana, uh, dressed as a drag queen or uh, displaying themselves in a way that is not conforming to the sex that they were assigned at birth and a cisgender identity, well, put them in jail, and you know, let's see if they are willing to kind of uh, shape up and and uh, and and get in line. Um, I think you would see uh, hardcore immigration policies, um, especially the kind of fantasies of a wall around the United States. I mean, uh, the city on a hill needs a wall apparently in order to keep it safe. I didn't read that in Matthew five, but apparently that's what. Uh, folks want. So I think those are some of the things you would see. I think you would see a uh, large scale restrictions on the United States's investment in uh, the global economy and the global uh, uh, set of alliances, whether that be in Europe, whether that be in Asia. Uh, so you would see a, a strong and stark nationalism come to the fore. Uh, so I think those are some of the ways that uh, if there were victories, uh, those are some of the the, the Christmas wish lists that uh, the Christian nationalists have. Do you, on the opposite end of that, do you, is there anything we you think can be done to combat the rise? Very much so. Uh, so I think there's a couple of things. I think one is, uh, and I, I mentioned the 2022 midterms and these elections we've had here in the last week. I think those show that when when people who are not Christian nationalists organize, when they're willing to fight, when they're willing to get involved on every level of uh, the political sphere, then. There are chances um, to uh, to stop the Christian nationalism in, in its tracks, and also to create a a different, more you know, inclusive and just society. So I think yes, there are reasons for hope there. Uh, I think there are many Christian organizations that are trying to uh, basically call out Christian nationalism as against uh, what they take to be the the gospel of of uh, Jesus Christ. And so you have organizations like the Baptist Joint Committee who started. Christians against Christian nationalism, and many others that are uh, working along those lines. Uh, for me, however, it, it, one of the things that has to be taken into account is that this is not a a one and done kind of um, enterprise. That uh, my book starts in the 1960s and goes to the present because I want to show that 
the organizing and the ramping up has been happening for 60 years. And what that tells me is that this is not a movement that will give up. You know, they they don't look at the 2022 midterms and think, well, it didn't go as good as we wanted. So, oh, well, let's get a different hobby. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe go get brunch. I don't know. See if we can have a few beers, watch, you know, some basketball or something, uh, play pickleball, whatever. Um, it's not that kind of movement. This this is like, well, what's plan B? What's plan C? What's plan mm-hmm. D? Uh, they have funding. They have money. They have organizations. They have voter lists. They have churches. They can mobilize. And so, the the trick is not only winning in the short term, but realizing this is a this is something that is will last for the rest of your lifetime. Mm-hmm. And if you if you know if you don't invest in that way, um they'll outlast you. Uh, it's also a battle that happens on every level of the American body politic. And so I think there's a lot of attention uh, for obvious reasons about who is in the White House and who who is in the Senate, uh, who's sitting on Capitol Hill. What Christian nationalists have known for a long time is that if we win the mayor races, if we win the school board races, if we win the state legislature races, if we win the county supervisor races, we will build. We will build a coalition and a set of uh, a set of organizations and and uh, a, 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 dy- a dynamism of power that will give us what we want, um, even if Joe Biden or Barack Obama is president. And so I think it's re- realizing the spatial dynamic and the, the the temporal dynamic and saying this is something that that has to be engaged on every level. I think that's that's uh, a good viewpoint of how it works in america because you literally have elections for everything from you know school boards to you know county elections and sheriffs and you seem to be the only country that has this whole tendency just to we'll just put it to a vote put it to a vote see what happens um but that's you know they start stacking um options and that's where we're seeing all these sort of school boards now you know banning books or um getting rid of critical race theory and can't 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 explain what it is, but you know they don't want it in their schools, kind of thing. But um, yeah, it's sort of it's an interesting example of how it, it's back to that American exceptionalism of um, you know we need to vote on everything, and you know we know that's how to get the power. In some sense, you know, in a vacuum from afar, you might think, "Wow, you know, really trying democracy on every level." Let's vote for dog catcher. Let's vote <laughs> for. Uh, PTA president and school board president. Uh, the problem is that so many of those elections are not invested in by anyone but the American right and mm. Christian nationalists. And so I'll give you an example. I was giving a talk in a small town in, in central California, uh, basically a farming community. It's you know We're not talking about Los Angeles or Hollywood or any of that business. And I'm talking to some folks there and they're saying, yeah, you know, we just had a school board election and uh, a woman ran she was very invested in getting rid of CRT. Now, no one in our small farming community has ever heard of CRT, but she was convinced that that's what needed to be done on the school board. She did not have any children in the schools. So it wasn't like you know her children had come home and said, mom, they're teaching me CRT. She had learned from various sources, uh, media sources, uh, you know, that CRT was a big problem. So she ran for school board. No kids in the school. And her only issue was getting rid of CRT. Well, she ran unopposed. So she might have gotten five votes or 20 votes or 50 votes, but guess what? She's now on the school board. And that's my point. That happens in this country thousands of times every year. Mm. And the Christian nationalists know that. And so 
it's on those levels that the kind of civic engagement is needed if we're going to have any kind of resistance to this. Trying to think of it. that's just kind of blown me away a little bit. <laughs> it's not. It's not great. Yeah, oh, it's not great. Just trying to think of like if I can think of any other um, people who have just run unopposed and apparently just won. Since they don't even vote, vote just walk on in and you win. Um, yeah. Yep. Um. It, yeah. Go on. No, no, no. I, I, I'm just agreeing with you. And and you know, my book's called Preparing for War because I think in many cases. Those people in this country who are not white Christian nationalists, they don't know they're in a war, right? Mm. They think, oh, we really need to vote for, I don't like Trump. Let's get him out of here. Okay, that's, that, I get you. That's totally good. Do you realize what's happening not far away in the White House, but like at your school board meeting or who's running for mayor or who's running for, you know, it doesn't matter. That's, that's where I think the other side is preparing for war and you have no idea mm. that that's actually even going on around you it's kind of like you know keeping an eye out on on everything that's happening you know you just don't just be invested in like what you consider the big um yeah the big moments i guess yeah 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 um and it's it's exhausting don't get me wrong like you know you said it you vote for everything it's exhausting i mean i lived it you know i've lived abroad several times in my life and all my my friends in the uk or france or wherever you know all my friends from new zealand and copenhagen they're always telling me like hey why do why is America always having an election? It seems like you guys you all you all elect a president and then it's you just having another election. And I'm like, I know, and it's exhausting, and it's there's way too much money involved and way too much media involved. It's overwhelmingly exhausting, but it's also the the situation we find ourselves in. And if we're not willing to engage it, then you know we we see how close we got at January sixth mm-hmm. and and everything else to having a different situation. So. That's a, it's a very salient point, I feel. Um, but that's probably a good place to sort of wrap it up. Is there anything, like one last thing, if you had to say anything about it, would you have anything? I would just say there's reasons for hope. And there's also reasons to dig in and to realize that this is a uh, a longstanding battle. Uh, you know, I, I lay it out in the book. For 60 years, these folks have looked at the Civil Rights Movement and the Voting Rights Act and immigration reform and queer liberation and women's liberation, they've looked at all those as the moments where they've lost their country. So uh, they've been trying to take it back since then, and they're not going to stop anytime soon. And uh, whether that's conspiracy theories, whether that's looking to authoritarian figures like Putin and Orban as as kind of their models, whether that is uh, you know trying to restrict uh, anyone who's not cisgender and, and straight, uh, it, they, will, they will do it. And uh, it, it, it's something that uh, is frightening, but uh, we have to be aware of. Mm. Hey, you know, I think I think that the the main crux is just hope. Have hope. Yeah, yeah. Have hope, yeah. and we'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Well, Bradley, yeah. Um, thank you for joining us. No, thanks so much for having me, and uh, great to be on with you. Until next time. <laughs> the RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by Editor-in-Chief Andy Alexander and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Israel Dominguez and Savannah Finver and our Opportunities Digest by Trevor Lynn. Audio editing by Alex Matthews and Nathan Springer. 
Podcast transcription by Ayesha Javid and Jacob Noblet, and social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links, or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, Instagram, and other portals. Thanks for listening. <laughs>